Let's explore the inside of the FBI from a female perspective. Jana Monroe, the first female to earn a spot in the prestigious Behavioral Science Unit, is our guest today. She's written an amazing book filled with stories about talking to serial killers, working undercover, and not letting her male colleagues see her fear of spiders. She's so down to earth, and I just can't wait for you to hear from her. But first, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her book. Welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Join me for another captivating true crime story where physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways are waiting for us. If you're listening right now, I believe you have a unique calling to become a different kind of PI, not a typical private investigator, but a person of impact. This is season four, episode 36. The book I chose for this week is Hearts of Darkness, Serial Killers, The Behavioral Science Unit, and My Life as a Woman in the FBI. My guest is its author, Jana Monroe, and you will be so glad that you listened to her stories. We'll get to them later. Being a female in a very male-dominated profession can be tough, but not as tough as Jana herself. She began her career in law enforcement at what was called a youth training facility. It was filled with young offenders whose crimes would have landed them in prison if they had just been old enough to send them there. Jana spent years rising through the ranks until she was sitting next to serial killers, asking them to tell her why they were in prison. Mostly, they just poured out lies and self-justifications. She said that they had hearts of darkness. I was fascinated by Jana's story of how she was able to review letters from Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. Those letters were written to his younger sister. They weren't screeds against the government like you might expect. They were stories about how well he had done when he served in the special forces in the military. But his sister told Jana that that wasn't true. Her brother had actually been rejected from the special forces. Maybe he wasn't really mad at what he said the government was doing to people like at the Ruby Ridge affair or at the siege at the Branch Davidian compound in Waco. Maybe he was just mad at the wrongs he felt had been done to him like men who attack women because they lack the skills to socialize with us successfully. Or like David Koresh, who preferred for everybody around him to die rather than lose his control over them. Another compelling lesson in this book comes out of a story Jana tells about interviewing women who were seriously romantically involved with serial killers. One of them even held a master's degree in nursing. And when she got tired of the violence he was directing at her, She actually recruited other women to be his victims. When Jana asked why the woman hadn't divorced him, she said, I love him. Love certainly can be blind. Jana theorized that despite all of this woman's accomplishments, she had such seriously low self-esteem that she was a sitting duck for a master manipulator. To quote from the book regarding these serial killers, manipulation and control are why they get up in the morning, why they go to bed at night, and why they do the horrible things they do in the hours in between. If you're listening to me, oh my goodness, we have got to teach the people we love to avoid people who try to manipulate and control them. They may not all be serial killers, but they're certainly all toxic at best. What really made this book a great read for me was the fact that Jana deliberately ended it on a positive note. 
After sharing so much of what she'd learned over her years talking with these people who had these hearts of darkness, she turned to reading the Bible and focusing on the good in most people. Best of all, she shared five personal survival skills that she'd developed. And if you've listened to me for any length of time at all, you know how much I love tips. I'm only going to share a couple though, because I want you to go get your own copy of this book. The two that resonated the most with me are having integrity and flexibility. I really try to incorporate those two things into my work and my life as much as I possibly can. I think I'll post about that on social media, and I'm going to ask you what your top two personal survival skills are. Deanna, I'm so excited that you could join us today because I'm just, I'm fangirling over everything you've done in your career, and I'm going to get the most obvious question out of the way, and then we can dive into some other stuff. You were the first female in the FBI's behavioral science unit, and you actually worked with Jodie Foster. She based her character of Clarice Starling on you in part. And so tell me, how did you teach her what she needed to know so that she could be a believable FBI behavioral analyst? Well, first, that's easy because in my opinion, she's an excellent actress and she was very professional. I appreciated that very much. She was in learning mode. And she obviously had the script, but what she and I would do, and she'd say, I'm supposed to say this, or this is where we're interacting. Would you actually do that? Or is this something that an agent would do? So she did more of a verification, I guess I would call it. But what was impressive is that she could ask detailed questions. That's awesome. Because a lot of times when we see police or government agents or even private investigators in media, they don't act anything like we know they really would in real life. So I'm sure you appreciated that from her. Yeah. And there was there was a part in, in the movie for people who have seen that when she is going on death row to, to speak with Dr. Hannibal Lecter. And that when he talked about, you know, how you dress. And I said, downplay yourself as much as possible. Wear, wear a, a hoover blue a navy suit, pants, no makeup. Be as nondescript as possible. Yeah, that's a lot different than what we typically see, especially on TV. Yes. And by your own admission in the book, you said that when you entered police work, it was really still a man's world. So what kind of protective or investigative work do you think that women are maybe a little bit better suited to? Well, in my opinion, and early on experience, and then it kind of bore out as I got more experienced, women tend to be more situationally aware. They tend to be able to tap into, I'm going to call it intuition, that little voice that, I mean, everybody has it, but they're more attuned to it and what it really means, right? So I think women are better at that and they um, typically pay more attention to detail. Tell me what you think your experience was in this. When I've been interviewing people, the, the softness that women can bring, you know, I'll be your big sister, I'll be a mother figure. To me, people have tended to open up a little bit more. Did you find that to be true? Oh, absolutely. That rapport developing um, is very much that way because there's more of an empathy, I think, more of an ability to connect. And that's one of the things I used to attempt to impart to, to young women that were getting into the profession, into the law enforcement profession, is don't be a man. You don't need to be a man. Don't change who you are. Be your genuine self. We get at all the skill sets, the investigation, the listening, everything that you need to, but don't try to be a man. And you mentioned situational awareness. 
that is something that I think people don't realize. We can all learn more about how to do that. From a self-protective perspective, what kind of things make you more situationally aware, whether you're out in a crowd, whether you're shopping, you're going back to your car after work? What can we do to notice those little things so that we are keeping ourselves safer? That is a great question. And those are the things I think, again, learned situational awareness. So some of the scenarios that you just mentioned, take a look at your surroundings always. And there's, you know, there's a difference between being an alarmist, okay, and then just being situationally aware. So it's not trying to create some unrealistic fear. But for instance, leaving a building at night, look at your surroundings. What do you see out there? Are there street lights? That's one of the things that I did when I park somewhere is I park near street lights. I see where exits of buildings are. How far am I going to have to walk? What time am I leaving for something? Paying attention to all of those kinds of things. Vans, this is panel <laughs> vans, right? Um, there have been uh, numerous cases of abductions, but there, there's no windows you can't see in them. I won't park near one of them. So just those types of things. I always, when I'm leaving a building, I have my car keys in my hand. That way I don't have to fumble for them. I'm, I can walk confidently, but also um, they can be used as a weapon if something does happen in the unlikely circumstance of that. Do all kinds of little things like that just to, to be aware. Again, not alarm, but to be aware of your surroundings. And if something doesn't look right or there's something concerning, that might not be the time to leave or it might be the time to elicit help from somebody else. I'm so glad you said that because I think a lot of women, especially, we don't want to be a bother. We don't want to feel like we're being paranoid or anything. But if you're leaving a place and maybe you thought you had parked somewhere where it was fairly light, but now it seems darker for whatever reason, you know, perpetrators will shoot out lights to do yes. that. So, Absolutely. The last place that, that I worked in uh, corporate security, we started what I referred to as an escort service with some of our uniformed officers. Just to provide that, because uh, we, for all employees, they had to walk like two blocks away. And this is downtown L.A., not to be, you know, critical of downtown L.A., but there's a lot that goes on there. And I had to really advertise that. I, I don't want to say coax, but encourage women to do that to your point. It's like, oh, I don't want to bother anybody and they're busy. And it's like, no, no, this is what this is for. Exactly. And security guards, whether you're at a mall or wherever you happen to be, if you left a restaurant, a bar, a lot of those places have security guards and just ask them, hey, will you escort me to my car? And you know what? Actually, a lot of them really appreciate that because it can be a boring job. I mean, you don't want something to be going on, but when nothing is, they actually welcome that. That is a great point. So don't hesitate to ask for help, ladies and, and gentlemen, too. I mean, we're typically the ones that are being targeted because they see us as being uh, easier to subdue or sometimes what they're wanting. They're not going to get from a man. Right. Do you know what else? That I, I'm glad you put that vulnerable. That's why I said, you know, look at your surroundings. Walk with confidence. Don't be fumbling for anything. Do not be talking on your phone, texting, looking your math. That just amplifies vulnerability. What that says, those nonverbal communications that it's to a possible perpetrator or offender, oh, I'm not paying any attention. I'm not here in the moment. I'm doing something else. And being that distracted makes you vulnerable. And scream if you need to. If you're wrong, worst case scenario, you get a little bit embarrassed. Yeah. I have had that happen before <laughs> and it was embarrassing, oh. but 
You know what else that I've had women say that they are embarrassed to do that? When you, when you know somebody is walking behind you and they're walking too close, they're kind of invading your space. That's when the little hairs, you know, kind of stick on the back of your neck. Pay attention to that. I turn around and look and see who it is. And I've had women say, oh, that's embarrassing. I said, embarrassing? It's better to be embarrassed than, than have an issue. I let them go by or, you know, just so they're not invading your space. I agree 100%. And I don't want to miss another very profound, I thought, insight that you made in your book where you said that if someone is willing to commit incredible acts of evil in their everyday life, we don't want to write that off as, oh, that was just odd or quirky or they didn't get enough sleep or whatever. People tell us who they are by how they act. So give us an example you know, we call them red flags or whatever. But give us an example of behaviors that we want to say, hey, maybe this is a person that I need to be a little more careful around. Hey, I can give you um, a real life one that, that I had, and it was with a man in, in the office setting. And again, it, this gets into different cultures. I won't go into to details, but there's a certain distance in which we feel comfortable in engaging with someone, right? right. Well, he literally like about seven inches from me. I mean, so I kept backing up. Well, then he would, you know, and but we're just having a, a work conversation, but he was invading my space. And then he would kind of had inappropriate eye contact, you know, was not looking right in the eyes. He's looking elsewhere. And those were red flags to me that something just to stay away from him. I did kind of a little investigation on it and found out that he had been arrested, not convicted, but had been arrested for inappropriate behavior, lewd behavior in public, those sorts of things. Yeah. Anybody with that kind of arrest or conviction in their background, that's also one of those red flags. And don't want to say that people can never change, but we know that that's. Yes. If you have that tendency, that proclivity, and you're an adult and have aberrant behavior traits, it's highly unlikely that that's going to change. I don't know who coined the silly thing, you know, tigers don't change their stripes, but that is very true. And especially when you start looking at those type of offenses, we're not talking petty theft and not, not that I'm condoning petty theft, but when you're looking at more personal type offenses, people don't change. And I think a lot of people wonder too, okay, if, if we're seeing some issues when someone is younger, oh, they'll grow out of that. Do they? It depends on what the behavior is, but not necessarily. And we used to call it the triad uh, of behavior. So it was enuresis bedwetting past an appropriate age, you know, 12, 13, 14, cruelty to animals and fire setting. And the research that was done on this, those three together, you have that in a child that's a very bad, a bad sign of the behavior that they're going to continue. Can we change that? That's the multi, I used to say billion dollar, now I'm going to say trillion <laughs> question. It kind of goes back right to, into the bad seed. Is it nature or nurture? I have my beliefs and when it comes to sexual offenders and predators, homicide, I don't believe so. There are preferential and situational child molesters. And just like when you look at some of the serial killers, they know very well that it's wrong. It, you know, it's like, oh, gee, I, I guess I'm not supposed to kill someone. Um, they know it's wrong. They just don't think they're going to get caught. Or the urge or the desire to do it is stronger than, you know, the punitive sanction that might be imposed. I think some behaviors can be changed, but when you talk about imprisonment, and I know they have all kinds of programs and, and psychology and whatnot, and they're attempting to help, I've not experienced anything where they have changed. 
and you've experienced a lot more than everybody listening put together. I will, I will guarantee that. And I, I do think it's interesting to study those. It's fascinating to me. But I also know that typically most of us are not going to run into a serial killer in our lifetime. But there are people just within our own circle of influence, whether it's our neighborhood, our jobs, our churches, wherever we are, our family even, we're much more likely to be harmed by someone we know. And so again, those red flags, maybe, maybe the smaller ones that are easier to gloss over, what kind of things should we be on the lookout for there? Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're so correct. Serial killers, people think about you know, the, the monsters and the boogeyman, and you look at statistics, which I don't really like because they can tell their own story. But statistically speaking, yes, you're more likely to be harmed physically by a member of the family or neighborhood people. I think, again, you start looking at some of the nonverbal clues in a, or verbal, right? Inappropriate conversations, inappropriate touching, in, inviting to things um, that maybe seem like a little more personal than that. Again, they get too close to you, their, their stance, their eye contact, all of those things are little clues that you pick up on sometimes subliminally, right? It, mm -hmm. you then go back and oh yeah, he was doing this or he did, he kept coming over all of when my husband wasn't home or those types of things. You add those up in aggregate and those are big red flags. And I think some little thread that kind of runs through all that is people who will not respect your boundaries. Absolutely. And whatever those boundaries are, yes, that you've said like, no, thank you, or I, I don't want to do this. Or, you know, women a lot of times are too nice um, yes. when someone is being pushy. It's like, well, no, no, not really. You know, they put actually they put words in there that to the recipient, maybe there's a little opening in there. So I think, yeah, being very direct when you're direct and you say no, and then that is not respected. That's that's a big problem. I know the people that listen to my show that are interested in true crime, a lot of us are really interested in that why. And there, why? there okay. may, yeah, there may be no good answer to this, but what is it about these people that See, makes them so comfortable doing things that the rest of us would never consider doing? It's so good that we don't think like that, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's hard. I never did think like that, but I had to try to get inside of somebody else's mind like that, that's when you're st you start talking about how we've categorized them as sociopaths or psychopaths, people without a conscience. Thank goodness most people have one. There's different levels of, you know, uh, like some people get very upset with something minor. Some people can tell little white lies. Some can tell big. But when you're looking at someone that really does not have a conscience, that's what we're talking about. They don't have that moral compass. They don't have that internal mechanism that tells them, this is wrong or the other person doesn't like it. They also don't have that empathy, right? To put themselves in that place where they're going to respect that. It's like they don't know how it feels or it doesn't bother them. So they don't care if it bothers you. And so if you've seen behaviors where someone has treated someone else abusively, it's not suddenly going to change just because you are able, you think, to pour more love into them. No, absolutely not. And those are some of the heartbreaking cases and matters that I, I have worked. That behavior where it's like, okay, and then I'll, I'll say he, it's, it's both he's and she, but you know, he apologizes and then we'll come back again. And then this becomes that cycle of, of things. And the love of one person is not to a person who's like that. It's, it's not going to change them. 
Because then when something happens again, they're going to go right back to the behavior that they're comfortable. Oh, that's a scary thought that they are comfortable with yes. that behavior. Yes. I, and, you know, we're still talking about human beings, right? But let's just normal and there's a big spectrum of normal. But people who want to change or have done something wrong or bad or whatever, they have the capability of changing and they will take steps to do that. If someone doesn't feel, see, sense the need to do that, and it's worked for them, they're going to revert right back to the behavior that works for them, not the other person. I love you say that it works for them because, again, when we allow people to trample all over our boundaries, that behavior is working for them. Yes. So, of course, they're not going to change. Right. Yeah, if they don't receive pushback in any form of that, they're just going to keep bowling over you. So here's a big lesson I want all of us to learn today. Well, to set your boundaries. And when people just really bulldoze over them, those are not your people. So how do we live not denying that? Because I think so many of us, we see it, but we don't want to believe it. You know, you watch the TV shows where the neighbors all say, well, he was the greatest guy other than, you know, every time a cat walked into his yard, we never saw it again. So how, how do we stop living in denial, especially when it's someone, well, He's a doctor. A doctor wouldn't do that. He's a preacher. A preacher wouldn't do that. I'm sure you have seen plenty of doctors, preachers, police officers, politicians, all kinds yeah. of people we think we can trust that we really can't. Yeah, aberrant behavior to that degree has no boundaries of profession or, or anything else. I think you hit on a very important part. We, we deny it, right? And I think, again, more gender specific as women, if uh, let's say it's a person, right? Well, we we like them. We want we want that relationship, right? So we're going to have it change or it's easier to look like you said the cat. Well, gee, I wonder. Yeah, I don't really wonder what happened to the cat. But I think that's a real introspective conversation one needs to have with themselves. They need to face reality on that. And again, all those little indicators are there. So it's a really hard thing to do. And I, I speak from experience because in personal relationships. I, I've had that happen, especially when I was younger and didn't have as much experience. And in retrospect, oh yeah, the signs were there, but I liked that person. And you start building up a tolerance, a threshold. You know, it's like, well, okay, just this time. You know, well, okay, then maybe next time. And that's where I think you have to stop. You have to be aware of what you're doing and you have to set your boundaries and stick with them. And listen to the people in your life. Yes. When everybody does not like this person, there's a reason. And these people love you. They want the best for you. They are not going to just make up crazy stuff. Absolutely. And I think that's so good to touch base with your friends or your, your circle, right? With people that support you and ask them. Because so, even then, sometimes they won't say anything. But if you invite them to, to give your, their opinion, their perspective, what do you think of this? I think people would be surprised how often they will do that, especially if it's somebody they don't think is right or good for you. And I'm not just talking about romantic relationships. Friendships oh. can be toxic. You can have toxic bosses. Absolutely. So, yeah. And it's funny when you mention that friendship. And what I've started doing, I'm not sure if it's, you know, a really good thing, but I reevaluate my friends, my relationships. And our pastor uh, has, he put this in, in a great perspective that you have acquaintances you have casual friends, you have friends, and then you have close friends. And in that close friend category, you're going to be lucky if you have a few, right? I will kind of 
put that in there. And then I don't have the same expectations. If somebody is just a casual friend, right, then I have to be reasonable with my expectations of what that relationship is going to be. And if I find that it's exhausting, if, if it's somebody that I have in the casual friend category and it's like, she's calling again, but I, then I realize, well, she calls because she's using me as a pseudo therapist, right? She's, a, she's always got problems and um, I'm a good sounding board. But again, is that the whole relationship? So I kind of go through my own set of where does this person fit and is it actually a good emotional relationship for me? That is a great point because, again, we I think we get stuck in ruts and we think, well, that person's been good for me in the past. But, you know, your life has changed. Their life has changed. I'm a firm believer in seasons. And oh, my gosh. I'm so glad you said that. Seasons. Absolutely. And and at first, um, that's why I had to learn how to describe it a little bit. Or it sounds harsh. It's like, well, I'm giving up my friends. Doesn't have to be an incident. Doesn't have to be, you know, a closure, a fight, uh, or whatever. Because we do have seasons, and we we have different things going on in our lives, and it's okay to let things drift. Yes, that doesn't mean forever. Nope. You know, people can move from one ring to another. That's right. That's right. But I think again, as women, we tend to. To hang on. And a lot of times that's unhealthy. And you look, we you still only have 24 hours in a day. And how do you want to spend that? And how are you doing what's best for you and those people that really care about you and need you? And that brings me into the question I think I wanted to ask you the most of everything. When we're talking about who in our lives are going to help us be our best self, our healthiest self, we have to count ourselves in there too. How are we taking care of ourselves? And being in the line of work that you were in for so long, and, you know, I've seen some of it too, there's a lot of darkness out there. There are people who, given the chance to do good or do evil, will choose evil. And so when you're so steeped in that, how did you take care of yourself? That's an excellent question. And I have to admit that early on, I did not. And I learned a very important lesson. I ended up with bleeding ulcers. It's not that you can say one created the other, right? However, I, I don't think it was coincidental. So it was a real wake-up call to me. I ran a lot. I used to go just to get out. Now, now I walk. I walk a lot. Um, walking, getting fresh air, getting your mind focused on other things was, was really great for me. I also believe very much in prayer. And um, I, I turned to God for, you know, some of my, my answers. He always answers them. I love humor, right? Funny. I think, it, I think it's very important to have a sense of humor. And I know we don't all have the same sense of humor, but um, I YouTube little video clips, three, four minutes of, of comedians that I like. I do that too. And it's, it's great. It is like, okay, I just need to take my mind off of this for a while. And I could be looking at something really dark and a good comedian for me. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm actually laughing about it. So it works wonders for me. That is awesome. And I could talk to you all day long, but I know that you're busy. And I want to end by letting everybody know that Jana has written a phenomenal book, the one that I described earlier, and it is coming out October 10th, very soon. You can pre-order it already on Amazon, and there's a link in the show notes to that. So if, if you could just wrap things up for us by either giving us an encouragement or another best practices tip from, from your time chasing monsters, that would be awesome. Okay. And I did dedicate my book to 
to the victims of violent crime and, and the loved ones who grieve their loss because of that. And so I don't want to see any more <laughs> victims. And I, I think, yes, a, a wrap up is having that situational awareness, being aware of your surroundings, being aware of, you know, where you are, taking care of yourself first, kind of like on the airlines, you know, they put your mask on first and then help somebody else. It's not being selfish. That's being very, very wise to do that. So I would just say be safe in all of your surroundings. Well, I love that. And again, I loved your book. It does have some stuff that's a little stronger than PG, what we usually do here. So just know that. But it is well worth the read. You will learn so much, not only about Jana and her work, but I think about yourself. It made me really stop and, and think about some things. So go grab a copy of that. Thank you again for sharing uh, all of your expertise and your heart with us. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. You've got a fabulous show and it was really my honor to talk with you today. Thank you. Oh, thank you. The Bible passage I picked that I really think goes so well with what we're talking about this week is from 1 Peter chapter 5 and it's verses 6 through 9. And I'm reading from the Living Bible translation. If you will humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, in his good time, he will lift you up. Let him have all your worries and cares, for he is always thinking about you and watching everything that concerns you. Be careful. Watch out for attacks from Satan, your great enemy. He prowls around like a hungry, roaring lion, looking for some victim to tear apart. Stand firm when he attacks. Trust the Lord and remember that other Christians all around the world are going through these sufferings too. This passage for me has some of the most practical wisdom for daily life that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. It dovetails so perfectly with what Jana shared with us today. God is so able to do amazing things through us when we are willing to be humble. Our world today does not celebrate humility at all. Usually, our world seems fascinated with celebrating people who are just proudly doing what they do all for themselves, which sounds a bit like what we learned about how a sociopath thinks. And that reminds me of the ultimate sociopath, Satan, our common enemy. It's not a matter of if he attacks, only when. Remaining humble and relying on God's strength is what's going to allow us to endure and overcome trials. I love how God knew that we would need to be reminded that we aren't alone in these struggles. All of our brothers and sisters from all around the world know what we're facing because they're facing things that are similar. We're all going to be so much better off when we keep each other encouraged and prayed up. The world will encourage us to indulge in negative thought patterns. But if we do, we're just helping the enemy mess with us. Let God have control of your worries. I know that's not always easy, and that's not something I'm always good at either. But I want to hear from you about how you're able to do that. What works for you? These hard conversations help us all do better. So send me an email, message me on social media, and have those hard but impactful conversations. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. <laughs>